Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 554, Resurrection and the New Creation. Where will we go when we die? And what will our resurrected bodies be like? How would a more cosmic understanding of the resurrection change the way we live and the way we share the gospel with others? Here we go with the first half of Matthew chapter 28. Hello, everyone. Well, we're back again. Uh, the second last week, I think it will be, of, uh, this is week 54, episode 54 on our study of Matthew. And uh, today we're going to be looking at the first half of the final chapter, chapter 28. We now come to the pinnacle of Matthew's gospel. In fact, it's the pinnacle, uh, it's, it's the culmination of everything in creation, uh, I feel like Paul, who wrote to the Corinthians, said, I, I came to you in much fear and trembling. We are walking on the holy of holies of ground right now. Um, so we're going to look at the resurrection today in two ways. One, uh, specifically, we're going to look at Matthew's account, as we've been doing. But then we're going to talk about the implications of the resurrection. Uh Peter Chrysologus wrote this, The law of the underworld has rightly run its course. The court of the grave has withdrawn. The rule of death repealed in punishment for its temerity because of the injustice suffered by their advocate, that's Christ. Souls are recalled. Bodies are renewed. Humanity is restored. Life is revived. Here the natural order has changed. Here the tomb devours death, not the dead. The house of the dead has become the headquarters of life. What a strange womb it is that conceived death but brings forth life. The church fathers had so much to say about the resurrection. And we'll We'll quote several of them today, but let's begin in our passage starting in verse 1. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. So the first thing to notice is that none of the four gospel writers attempt to describe the resurrection. They only talk about what happened after the resurrection. Uh, I, I think it's because the resurrection is holy ground. They don't want to, as it were, touch the ark. Um, you know, unlike our day, they were very comfortable to not only accept but embrace mystery. So they don't describe the resurrection. In fact, it's not until the second century that that some kind of pseudo-gospels uh, describe that. But the authentic gospels, none of them do. Instead, they describe the resurrection's effects. The second thing to notice from this first verse is the various discrepancies between the four gospel accounts add to their authenticity. If you read them carefully, you'll see each one has got some different details. But that, to me, shouts out the veracity of their accounts. It's like if you've ever witnessed a car accident and then they they try to get reports from people, everybody tells it a little bit differently. So why is this? It's because each writer was reporting accurately from their own sources, whether it was personal source, 
uh, or whether it was someone who'd been an eyewitness who passed it on to them. They don't try to blend the, the differences. Thirdly, all four Gospels place this encounter in the early morning. This is really important. And I think it's highly suggestive for all four writers that, that the resurrection is the beginning of a whole new era. Um, as we'll see later, this new creation was a predominant resurrection theme for the early church. As, as light banishes darkness at the dawn of a new day, so this is the first day of a new era of salvation. The fourth thing, and I'm sure it's something we've all noticed, is the women. In all four Gospels, the women are the first ones at the tomb. The women are the first witnesses. There's different combinations of women reported, but it's interesting. In all four Gospels, there's one name that is consistent and usually prominent. That's Mary Magdalene. We see her incredible loyalty in all four Gospels. She was at the cross uh, when the men had run away. She was at the tomb when Joseph laid Jesus' body there, and she stayed even after he left. She was the first one at the tomb on Sunday morning. So where are the crowds that had thronged around Jesus just days before? Where are all those who'd been healed by Jesus over the last three years? And most of all, where are the disciples? At this moment, the only participants in the Jesus movement are these two women. By our human perspective, we think this is a disaster, certainly precarious, but not by heaven's perspective. Now, if the gospel writers were going to gloss over anything or change anything, surely it would have been the witness of the women in first century Palestine. In both the Jewish and the Roman culture, women were nobodies. They couldn't even give a testimony in a court of law. We began, again, we're back to bookends because we began looking at this gospel a year ago now, and, and we saw in the genealogy, I said the genealogy is gospel. And, and, and those, there's a connection here. It finishes the same way. There's a connection between these women, these culturally overlooked, disempowered, these invisible ones at the ends of Matthew's gospel, and the four despised women that Matthew very purposely included in Jesus' genealogy at the beginning of the gospel. Michael Green wrote this. This is the supreme irony, the supreme humor, the supreme surprise value of Almighty God, that when he does his greatest act since the creation of the world in raising his son from the dead, he attests it through the lips of those who were widely discounted. Magnificent. Isn't that the upside-down kingdom? Isn't, isn't that Jesus' heart and focus? Let's move on. Verse 2 and 3. 
Suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descending from heaven came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. Matthew uniquely is recording a second earthquake. The first one was at the crucifixion. The earthquake and the angel are signs that God is at work in a whole new way. St. Hilary, another one of the church fathers that we're quoting today, said this, The earthquake is the might of the resurrection, when the sting of death being blunted and its darkness illuminated, there is stirred up a quaking of the powers beneath as the Lord of the heavenly powers rises again. But maybe there's a hint of something else that Matthew's getting at here. In, in chapter 24, which Brian Zahn took us through so wonderfully, but 24-7, Jesus predicts that earthquakes will be a sign of the end of the present world. I just, as I was reading this, I was wondering, is Matthew suggesting that at the cross and the resurrection, the end has begun? The old age is over. The angel came and rolled back the stone. This is absolutely universal among the church fathers, spanning five centuries, and contemporary commentators agree the stone was not rolled back so that Jesus could leave. Rather, it was rolled back so the women who had seen Jesus' body laid in the tomb two days earlier could now see that it was empty. Let's look again at another church father, quoted him a few minutes ago, Peter Chrysologus. He saw a spiritual reading in this. Pray, brothers, that the angel would descend now and roll away all the hardness of our hearts and open up our closed senses and declare to our minds that Christ has risen. For just as the heart in which Christ lives and reigns in heaven, so also the heart in which Christ remains dead and buried in a grave. So we need to pray that the stone over our own heart would be rolled away. Matthew says also that the angel's appearance was like lightning. Matthew 24, 27, he says, For as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. So is this another suggestion? Because we've looked for a year at how Matthew puts in layers and layers of, of meaning and hints at things. Is this another suggestion of a new beginning? Because he, Jesus had said, when the lightning, I mean, when I come, it's going to be like lightning flashing from east to west. Is that what Matthew's suggesting here? That the angel's appearance was like lightning? Like Matthew 20, uh, rather Matthew 17, the Mount of Transfiguration, is Matthew giving us a glimpse of what a resurrection body will be like with an appearance like lightning? Let's go to verses 4 and 5. For fear of him, the guards, that's the angel, for fear of him, the guards shook and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. Now, there's a great irony here. 
that I believe was very intentional on Matthew's part. The one who was dead is now alive. And the live guards are now, in Matthew's words, like dead men. In the Greek, where Jesus says, uh, do not, or the angel says, do not be afraid. In the Greek, it's very emphatic. You do not be afraid. It's directed to the women. And it's in great contrast with the guards who are lying as though dead. Move from fear to wonder, because fear deafens us, it blinds us, it paralyzes us, it confuses us. It blocks us from both receiving and sharing with others. This is why the angel, I believe, begins the message of the resurrection with these words. They're both a command and a reassurance. Do not be afraid. (laughs) I'm quoting for the third time. Peter, Christologist, who amplifies and paraphrases the angel's words. Listen to this. Do not fear. Fear is for those who delivered Christ over to death. For Pilate. For the soldiers who mocked him. For the wicked who crucified him. But you have gathered together in joy, not fear. He whom you have searched for has risen from the dead. I love that. Verse 6, he is not here, for he has been raised, as he said, come see the place where he lay. Let me say this again. He is not here, for he has been raised, as he said, come see the place where he lay. These are some of the most important words in all of Matthew's gospel. He is not here, for he's been raised. You know, throughout Matthew's gospel, we've looked to see how much he draws upon Old Testament prophecy, the fulfillment of prophecy. Well, here we have prophecy within the New Testament. Three times Jesus had predicted his resurrection, and now it's fulfilled. This is a physical statement. Before the ascension, which happens at the very end of of the gospel accounts, before the ascension, Jesus has a body that was physically present. He is not here, and in a moment he'll say where he is, Galilee. So there's a physicality here. He's either here or there. Matthew's doing something very specific. He is making a concrete statement that is anti-Gnostic. Jesus is not everywhere. Jesus Existence is not ethereal, but physical. This we still need to watch for in the 21st century. It's physical. This is theologically very important for Matthew and the early church. A bodily resurrection tells us that Jesus values the whole person. Our physicality, including all that that entails, is good. This takes us back to Genesis 1 where he says it's very good. That was another aspect of Gnosticism, by the way. Because they focused on the ethereal, they separated the spiritual and the physical, and Jesus never did, even in this proclamation from the angel and what we'll see in a few minutes. There's another dimension to Jesus' physicality after the resurrection. It's a physical body, but it is a resurrection body. 
And this resurrection body has some different characteristics. Paul addressed this in the great resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. I encourage you to read over that a few times. I'll refer to it two or three times today, but it's a marvelous chapter on the resurrection. Starting at verse 42, 1 Corinthians 15. It is the same way with the resurrection of the dead. Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, but they will be raised to live forever. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they will be raised in glory. They are buried in weakness, but they will be raised in strength. They are buried as natural human bodies, but they will be raised as spiritual bodies. For just as there are natural bodies, there are also spiritual bodies. Consider the resurrected Jesus. They knew it was him, but, but somehow he was different. They recognized Jesus in part. We'll look more at this in a few minutes. Joseph Ratzinger, who has a wonderful three-volume set, Jesus of Nazareth, he wrote this, His presence is entirely physical, yet he is not bound by physical laws, by the laws of space and time. In this remarkable dialectic of identity and otherness, of reality and freedom from the constraints of the body, we see the special mysterious nature of the risen Lord's new existence. Think about it. At the, in John 21, the Sea of Galilee, they, they, is it Jesus? Isn't it Jesus? The, the two disciples walking to Emmaus, their hearts were warmed, but they weren't sure. In the upper room, Jesus' body, he's got a body that now passes through walls that suddenly appears and disappears. But it's tangible. He says, touch me. Like Paul, the early church fathers insisted on a physical resurrection of Christ. In fact, this was one of the great dividing lines between them and the Greeks, them and the Orthodox Jews. It was this insistence on a physical resurrection. I'm going to read to you from a few of the early church fathers. Ignatius, going all the way back to about 100, he was a disciple of John. For I know and believe that he was also in the flesh after the resurrection. And when he came to those with Peter, he said to them, Take, touch me, and see that I am not a bodiless spirit. And immediately they touched him and believed, mingling with his flesh and his blood. Irenaeus. Oh, one of my favorite church fathers to read from the second century, about 175. Christ arose in the substance of flesh and showed to the disciples the marks of the nails and the opening in his side. These were the proofs of his flesh, which rose from the dead. Verse 7 and 8. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has been raised from the dead, and indeed he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. This is my message for you. So they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Matthew is unique in his account of of saying that Jesus was going to Galilee and telling the disciples to go there. So, Again, we see the affirmation 
that Jesus had of women. He tells the women, this is an important message. Did you know Mary Magdalene was known as the apostle to the apostles in the early church and first among the apostles? Remember, women were not allowed to give testimony in a Jewish court of law. So, is Mary, this one with the great testimony, again, Matthew's way, in a layered way of indicating the end of the law. And I raised this issue a few weeks ago. If if the women were so affirmed with the greatest testimony of all, is there a disconnect with how so many of our churches in the 21st century limit the women's testimony, limit their place? It's just a thought. And then he said, go quickly. The message of the good news is both wonderful, but it's also urgent. And if you just think, I was thinking about this. I underlined it actually just this morning. These two words, go quickly, shake us out of our complacency. And he was raised from the dead. Matthew uses this phrase four times in his gospel. Two weeks ago, we looked how Christ about Christ's descent into Hades, um, that that in his death and his resurrection he raided Hades. Again, we'll develop that more in a few minutes. He is going on ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. So he's the only writer who records this happening in Galilee. Jesus had already promised to go to Galilee. Did you know that? Back in chapter 26, verse 32, he said, I'm going to see you in Galilee. Now the angel is reminding them. By the way, Galilee was about an 80-mile journey. And you couldn't take an Uber. You had to walk. So throughout this whole gospel, we've seen that for Matthew, faith must be put into practice. Faith is a walk. It is lived out. So like the disciples, if we're going to see and meet with Jesus, we must follow him. We must be willing to journey. I, I've recently been confronted with this uh, again, and well, several times with folks that are just not willing to journey. This is where I'm camping. We're not called to camp. We're called to journey. So why did he pick Galilee? His ministry began in Galilee. It was a place of great acceptance within Galilee. But as we pointed out several months ago, Galilee was looked down upon, almost despised by the people in Jerusalem, the capital. You know, Matthew's developed this throughout his whole gospel, that, that Jesus the Messiah comes from a despised area. Jesus first revealed himself to a despised people. He didn't go to the power brokers. He didn't go to the place of great influence. He first went to the despised people. Jesus, remember in Luke 4, he said, he has sent me to bring good news to the poor. Beloved, without a doubt, if we read honestly, there is a gospel bias in Jesus' life and ministry toward the poor, toward the despised, toward the outcast, 
So we shouldn't be surprised that he first appears to women and then he says, I'll meet you in Galilee, to the 12, to the 11 at that point. And the scriptures talk about Galilee of the Gentiles. And, and this is, this is a, a growing theme that, yes, it will start in Galilee, but it's going to grow and grow and grow and penetrate the sphere of the Gentile world. Let's move on. Verse 9 and 10. Suddenly Jesus met them, the women, and said, Greetings. And they came to him, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. They took hold of his feet and worshipped him. I want you to notice something here. They grabbed the feet of a very human, tangible, alive Jesus. Matthew was stressing this was no vision or apparition, that he was tangible and he was real. But what did they do when they grabbed the feet of this tangible Jesus? They worshipped him. We're back to the incarnation. Jesus is fully a human being, and Jesus is fully God. He says to them like the angel did, don't be afraid. This was, this was a command, but it was an assurance. He says, and then this has always grabbed me. He says, go and tell my brothers. I love when people refer to me within the church in a familial way. You know, there, there's some call me Papa Steve. I love talking about my brother. Oh, he's such a good brother. She's such a good sister. There's something wonderful about that. He has just called the disciples his brothers. In spite of their faithlessness, in spite of their abandoning him, he says, tell my brothers I'm going to meet with them. That one phrase is a message of the gospel. It's a message of grace and forgiveness and second chances. It's the living hope that got hold of Peter's heart and he never let go. So whenever we preach the gospel, we're preaching forgiveness. Now there's an overview of those 10 verses. Now I want to go a little deeper and talk about the mystery of the resurrection. I've told you before that the New Testament is filled with references to mystery. A mystery is something deep, something that is endless. It's, it's, it's not a, a perplexity. It's something that takes us deeper and deeper. So let's start by looking at the resurrection of Jesus. So Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, was different. He wasn't just a resuscitated person. Lazarus was raised from the dead after four days. But there'd come a day he would die, maybe get sick or just get old. On the one hand, as I said to you, Jesus appears as a man, like other men. He's walking along the road to Emmaus. They see a man. That he invites Thomas to touch his wounds. He asks the disciples for a piece of fish to eat. He is present bodily. Yet, they and the disciples, as I said earlier, didn't recognize Jesus at first. The Emmaus Road, at the side of the Sea of Galilee. Here's the point. 
while the resurrected Christ is no longer fully belonging to our world, yet he is truly present in our world. Again, the testimony was to physically interacting with the risen but physical Jesus. Today, we don't have time to talk about what an incredibly important battle that was, that the early church fathers fought for this, that he wasn't just because because the, the Gnostics in their very variations, the Gnostics were saying that he's, well, he just appeared to be a man, really, he was just God, or the presence of God came on him and then left him, or whatever. They insist, no, fully God, fully man, resurrected in the flesh. His resurrection changed the boundaries of the disciples' experience. He suddenly appeared, he suddenly disappeared, he goes through walls. Jesus' presence is entirely physical, and yet at the same time, he is not bound by the laws of space and time. This is a paradox. Imagine what Mary was emotionally experiencing, and even her perceptions, as she didn't recognize Jesus, and then in an instant she did. This is clearest in John's resurrection account. Outside of their experience, what Jesus was to them was outside their experience, but beyond a doubt, so that they declared it to the world. This takes us back, you you may remember early, early in this series, we talked about Jesus in the Old Testament. They're they're called Christophanes. When Jesus shows up, uh, Samson's parents, uh, Abraham, uh, Moses at the bush, Christ was physically present to Abraham and Jacob and Joshua. But even those Old Testament fathers, their experience of him was outside the laws of their known existence. That's why Moses turned aside, what's this, a bush that's burning and burning and yet not being consumed? That that he was outside the laws of their what they knew of existence. At the resurrection, not only is Jesus raised from the dead, he has brought all of humanity, past, present, and future, back to life. Let me say this again. Because we've had too, as we've had too small a gospel, we've had too small a view of the resurrection. Not only is Jesus raised from the dead, he has brought all of humanity back to life. This is a bigger, more powerful, more beautiful understanding of the resurrection. It's interesting. In, in most <clears throat> uh, Western Christian art, Jesus comes out of the grave alone. It's all about he's triumphed. But in virtually all of the Eastern Christian art, Jesus is not coming out like I did it. He is lifting Adam and Eve and humanity out of Hades. Isn't that an interesting, different perspective? Now, Jesus' resurrection confirmed both his message and action of going to the cross. It tells us that he wasn't mistaken in the way he went. His canonic love was not mistaken. That he, he wasn't mistaken in believing that, that the Father was going to move through this. 
because the ultimate, this is the ultimate expression of divine love. And, and on the cross, he entered into the deepest darkness of evil and he assumed that evil upon himself. He assumed all of the evil of the powers that be, of sin, of Satan, of death. And now it's resurrection morning. And the resurrection is the Father's vindication of the self-sacrificial life and death of the incarnate Christ. It was the perfect expression of God's eternal character. And the resurrection confirmed that the cross is, in fact, the revelation of God's true character and that God's enemy-loving, nonviolent, self-sacrificial way of responding to evil is, in fact, victorious. Canonic love wins. So that's Jesus in resurrection. Let's talk about the resurrection as a new life form. The principal point about Christ's resurrection is that in taking place in this present world, it is the defining event of the new creation. It, it, it's the end of the old and the beginning of the new. The new creation at his resurrection is being born at and with his resurrection. Again, Joseph Ratzinger said, in Jesus' resurrection, a new possibility of human existence is attained that affects everyone and opens up a future, a new kind of future for mankind. Do you hear how cos cosmic this is? How big this is? We'll talk a little more of that in a minute. Jesus' resurrection is a whole new life form. It is life no longer subject to the law of dying. The matter changes into a new reality. And we get a foretaste of this uh, at the wedding of Cana, at the feeding of the 5,000, where matter changes. He gives us a taste of it. But now this is the new reality. And the disciples witness it in the risen Christ. One of the church fathers, Tertullian, said this, From now on, spirit and blood have a place within God. What's he saying? He's saying in the resurrection, there, there's a, another deeper dimension of the incarnation. In the incarnation, the creator entered his creation. The creator became the created. Listen to that, please. I've said it months ago. Hear it again. The creator becomes the created. The incarnation is about the birth, the life, and death of Jesus. In the resurrection, Jesus becomes the first expression of a new creation. So now a, a totally new kind of future for all of creation has begun. And it's going to reach its, its full culmination when Christ comes again, what we call the second coming. Jesus' second coming in, in the same body in which he was crucified and rose again will complete the narrative of the incarnation and so fulfill the story of creation. This, the, the crucifixion and resurrection was not a, a, a fix-it plan. It was part of, of God's plan from before the foundation of the cosmos.
The full outworking of Jesus' resurrection, Paul affirms, will bring about the glorification of the whole created order. That's Romans 8.21. Read uh, 19-22 and think about it. This is creation is groaning for this. And this is the context for the church's celebration of the mystery of Christ and his resurrection. Christ's resurrection is the first fruits, not just of my resurrection, where we focus so much, but the recreation of the entire cosmos. This is the triune God's eternal, unchanging, unshakable plan for all eternity. And with Jesus' resurrection, this plan has begun. In the New Testament, hope isn't optimistic speculation. It means waiting for a certain future. Paul talks about this kind of hope 47 times in his letters. He understood that all of the cosmos, because of Christ's resurrection, was going to be transformed forever. When we take hold of the truth of this, it changes our whole worldview. There's a different future, a time and place where the the oppressive rich, the powerful, the dishonest, the violent do not have the final word. This worldview changes our way of seeing and interacting with our world right now. We're empowered by this living hope. This This is resurrection worldview. It empowers us to become truly prophetic people. This is our hope. This is our vision for the future of all the cosmos. So the gospel is ultimately a cosmic gospel. Let's talk about resurrection and death. We're covering a lot today. A couple of weeks ago in episode 52, we looked at Christ's descent into Hades. And the early church called it the harrowing of hell. Christ set free all those who were waiting in Sheol or Hades, I told you they're the same word, the same place. One's the Jewish word, one is the Greek word. To better understand the resurrection, we've got to keep this in mind. Until Christ's descent and resurrection, Hades, which remember is not hell, that's Gehenna, it's simply a place of waiting. Until Christ's descent and resurrection, Hades was what awaited those who died. Now death has changed forever. When we die, we we still, we go through a door. But now it opens into a whole new reality. There's many ways, many reasons of saying that, but let's go to one of the best ones. If you've ever been to a funeral, you hear this all the time. John 11, 25, 26, Jesus said to her, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Well, clearly, Jesus doesn't mean we won't experience that moment that we call death. Rather, what he's saying is that our destiny is not and never again will be death as the grave or Sheol or Hades. Not only do we not embrace death, we won't even experience. We won't go there. So what does this mean? Well, first of all, I'm not sure 
But I think that those who choose not to follow Jesus are in Hades, not Gehenna, not suffering, but in this place. And and if you want to see why, go back to episode 52. Now, whether or not this is permanent, there are various points of view. In Luke 27, 43, Jesus is on the cross. He turns to the thief and he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. What did Jesus mean? I think we need some clarity on this whole issue of paradise. Paradise is the new destination for us when we die instead of Sheol. Death now becomes promotion to the conscious love and presence of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Paradise is not our final destiny, but it's an intermediate place where we experience rest and joy and refreshment. Remember, Peter said in uh, in Acts 3, it is one of his great sermons, enjoy times of refreshing. This is what he was talking about, I think. In this state, we're with those who have gone before us. Paul uses the term the communion of saints. Since both those who've gone before us uh, and us, we are all in Christ. We share with the communion of saints, the, the believers from past and present, we share with them right now. They are presently our brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm usually very aware of this at the Lord's table when we take the Lord's Supper. So let's get back. In paradise, we await Christ's second coming. This is our physical resurrection, but with a whole new kind of body. The second coming, we get the physical resurrection. N.T. Wright has coined a phrase, life after life after death. By this, he means that when we die, we immediately go to the, the place, the state known as paradise. It's conscious. It's not, it's not, just unconscious, dark. It is absolutely conscious, and we enter in, I believe, both both with, with the triune God and with the, the communion of saints. All of these things we could talk about much longer, but today I want to give this kind of, I hope, important and helpful overview of resurrection. So let's talk about resurrection and me. I think we should almost do that in capital letters. For much of the past 250 years, especially in evangelical Christianity, there's been a great emphasis on my or our personal salvation. And as I've told you before, this reflects the highly individualistic nature of society. And that's bled right into the church. It's about me. When we make salvation and the resurrection about my destiny, we lose the bigger and, frankly, the more biblical and historic picture of God's plan for all of his creation. Again, the resurrection is about recreation. Our individual worldview pays very little attention to this. It's just about getting to heaven. N.T. Wright points out that we're living in a time dominated by two myths. Number one, that mankind is steadily progressing and getting better. And this myth ignores and therefore cannot deal with the issue of evil. 
by the way, that's a that's a myth that it was proved ludicrous, wasn't it, through World War One and World War Two, and uh, perhaps even now, as as there's terrible war going on in Europe. But here's the second myth, and this is even more predominant. It's a negative myth, because it says the purpose of Christian faith is that I go to heaven. Now this inevitably leads to a desire to escape this fallen world. I'm constantly confronted by, by well-meaning people who, who, who see the gospel as, oh, it's rapture, it's I'm going to get, I'm going to, he's going to pull me out, I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to escape this. By the way, you may want to go back to chapter 24, the episode on that, which I think was episode 50, I believe, to, uh, to really just get rid of that myth. The early Christians believed that God was going to do for the entire cosmos what he did for Jesus at his resurrection. The great Christological hymn of Colossians 1, starting at verse 19, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, that's Christ, through him to reconcile all all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, all things reconciled. This is the movement of Christ's creation. This is the movement. This is the meaning of the resurrection. The whole movement of God's plan is the reconciliation of all things. Notice it's not conditional. Creation has a common identity that he is driving the cosmos forward. David Bentley Hart said this, The cosmos will have been truly created only when it reaches its consummation in the union of all things. This is what Paul called the mystery of his purpose. Ephesians 1.9 In the resurrection we will be engaged in the eternal activity of the triune God throughout an ever-expanding cosmos. Now, yes, there is a personal meaning to the resurrection, an individual meaning, meaning to Christ's resurrection. And it means both paradise and Christ's second coming. At Christ's triumphant return to earth, which we call the second coming, our dead bodies will be resurrected. They will be real, physical bodies, but with a difference. Think of what we've said about Jesus' body today. It's the same as before, but different. Paul addressed this question again in 1 Corinthians 15, starting at 35. But someone may ask, how will the dead be raised? What kind of bodies will they have? What a foolish question. When you put a seed into the ground, it doesn't grow into a plant unless it dies first. And what you put in the ground is not the plant that will grow, but only a bare seed of wheat or whatever you're planting. It is the same way with the resurrection of the dead. Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, but they will be raised to live forever. Our bodies are buried in brokenness. They'll be raised in glory. They're buried in weakness, but they'll be raised in strength. They're buried as natural human bodies, but they will be raised as spiritual bodies. For just as there are natural bodies, there are also spiritual bodies. 
life after life after death. St. Irenaeus wrote this, Neither the structure nor the substance of creation is destroyed. It is only the outward form of this world that passes away. That is to say, the conditions produced by the fall. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. And in this new heaven and new earth, man shall abide forever new and forever conversing with God. We're on the home stretch. The resurrection in eternity. The resurrection is about eternal and cosmic joy, a joy that will never dim, can never be defeated or even altered in any way. The resurrection is the new recreating life force in the universe. This is what happened in the resurrection. Here is an excerpt from a letter written by a prisoner in a Soviet gulag. The deepest foundation of hope and joy is the resurrection. In a gulag, I've met men who who were finally set free at the fall of communism from gulag. 25 years some of them had been in, and they told me stories that were horrific. So that's the context for what this man has written. The deepest foundation of hope and joy is the resurrection. Easter is an explosion of joy. It is the explosion of cosmic joy at the triumph of life after the overwhelming sorrow over death. Let all the world, invisible and visible, keep holiday. For Christ, our eternity is risen. All things are now filled with the certainty of life, whereas before all had been moving steadily toward death. When I read that, I was right back to that room, which is more than 30 years ago now with these incredible men. Today, our relationship with the triune God carries with it the seeds of eternity today. Not it will, it does today. Because of the cross and the resurrection, we are eternal beings today. A new heaven and a new earth means that we are not saved from this body, but we are saved in this body. We are not saved from a material world, but saved with material world. All of creation is groaning, waiting for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed, Paul said in Romans 8. Part of the mystery of the resurrection is that our salvation involves the reconciliation of all things. In the new earth, all of life will share in immortality. In the kingdom... In this new age, my unique personhood in its most truest form will be forever unfolding. It won't be static. My relation with, relationship with the triune God will go ever deeper and deeper. And with the communion of saints, this is what Uh, Paul meant when he talked about the unsearchable riches of Christ. The eternal kingdom is ever-expanding recreation. And in this recreation, in this kingdom, every one of us will find our own special place and special work. Eternity suggests an unending progress, a movement, a, a growth. We're forever advancing forward. More than, more than a return to the garden, back to our original state. It's more than that. 
way more. It is a fresh departure into an ultimate, eternal, and infinite reality. I used to enjoy the poetry of, of uh, Cardinal Newman, who wrote in the uh, 1800s, to live is to change, and to be perfect is to have changed often. Gregory of Nyssa, a favorite church father. This brings us back to the need to embrace paradox, even in the eternal. He says this, the essence of perfection consists precisely in never becoming perfect, but in always reaching forward to some higher perfection that lies beyond. Isn't that something? Let me say it once again. The essence of perfection consists precisely in never becoming perfect, but in always reaching forward to something, uh, to some higher perfection that lies beyond. Because God is both eternal and infinite, our constant reaching forward will be without limit. God will grow eternally nearer to us, yet he also remains the divine other. Even as we behold him, we continue to advance into the mystery of who this triune God is. So let's finish. At the turn of the 5th century, right around year 400, 401, one of the early church fathers and, and a favorite writer of mine, John Christostom, he preached an Easter homily. That's like a short message. And that was so powerful, it is still preached in the Orthodox Church every single Easter, right to this day. And here is how the end of it goes. Here's how it culminates. O death, where is your sting? O hell, where is your victory? Christ is risen and you are overthrown. Christ is risen and the demons are fallen. Christ is risen and the angels rejoice. Christ is risen and life reigns. Christ is risen and not one dead remains in the grave. For Christ being risen from the dead has become the first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep. I feel like there's so much more to say, but that's as far as we're going to go today. And this is why for the early church and for much of the church, when we, when we say the cross, we are referring to, to the crucifixion, Christ's descent into Hades, and the resurrection. It is all one event. God bless you. In a minute or two, Tim and I will begin to talk about some of the implications of this. Let me finish by saying I encourage you what I said earlier, I encourage you to read prayerfully and carefully Paul's resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. Hmm. God bless you. Now what? The gospel is meant to be lived. We now invite you to be a part of the discussion as we talk about how to apply this teaching. YouTube viewers can use the comments section below. You can also email your questions and comments to podcast at impactnations.com. A few weeks ago, you picked up me for always saying well at the beginning of this segment, and so I'm going to endeavor not to say that. Uh, I have questions. 
Uh, I'm sure our listeners have questions, by the way. I'd, I'd love to hear some questions. I was hearing from a listener just today uh, who was uh, coming to us from uh, southern Ontario, just started listening recently and said, I'm going back. I'm going to listen to the entire Matthew series because it's so good because uh, well, they just kind of discovered it recently. So uh, I know there are listeners out there who are uh, listening to this stuff. Even if you got questions from older episodes or whatever, um, send them in, podcast at impactnations.com. We'd love to discuss them here in this space. Do me a favor. Maybe pull up that mic just a little bit. Uh, I don't know. Is uh, that better? I'm not sure. I'm, we're good. Isaiah's giving a thumbs up. I'm just concerned about your distance from it. But um, I just before we jump into some questions, I just wanted to remind our listeners that we are in the midst of our spring campaign for Survive to Thrive. Survive to Thrive is our annual campaign whereby we are. Uh, aiming to rescue this year as many as 1,200 teen moms in Uganda. Uh, these are young women who have faced abuse, uh, abandonment, uh, many of them homelessness. Uh, they have nowhere to turn. They are scorned by the medical system, so they can't go to a local hospital and seek the medical care that they need in their pregnancy. Yep. Uh, and so we're providing care in a number of ways. Uh, we have shelters in two different locations now, uh, working with the Remnant Generation as our partners. Um, we also have uh, we're we're aiming to create even more of what we call safe motherhood spaces, which are um, special clinics inside of hospitals where we have agreements uh, that where they've the staff there have been specifically trained to work with teenage girls who have uh, been facing just these terrible terrible uh, conditions. So. Um, and then we've got outreach happening all the time in a number of different communities all over the place in Uganda. So, uh, but we need your help to do that. So, uh, to learn more, head to impactnations.com slash thrive. Uh, you can see some videos there, some just heartwarming photos, some stories, uh, some of them pretty difficult, but also, uh, just beautiful in the way that, uh, we see actually recreation happening before us. Really, we're seeing incredible redemption, uh, in the midst of terrible darkness. The light shines and people, uh, begin to, receive hope in a, an incredible way. So uh, if you'd like to participate in that, we actually have matching dollars right now. So every gift that you give uh, will be matched. Um, and so you can do that today. Uh, and then also, if you want, you can start a fundraiser. Maybe you want to draw some uh, attention to your friends on what's happening. So you can do that as well by becoming an ambassador. Head to impactnations.com slash thrive. Uh, please, we do need your help very much. These, we don't need your help. These these young women in Uganda desperately need your help. Uh, but together, we can do this. We're and we've got a history of this. This isn't just, oh, no. this would be yeah. a good idea. No, we've been doing this for several years now. We've uh, reached, I think, probably over the years, uh, perhaps thousands. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and it just continues to grow. The opportunities continue to grow. Um uh, Mum was in Uganda recently meeting with uh, many government officials there saying, please come. We want you to be in our community. We want you to continue to reach these young women. So uh, the opportunities continue to grow. Yeah. Um, so we got some work to do, but we're going to do it. It's going to be great. Um, all right. Questions, questions galore. Uh, oh. I don't even really know where to start. Um, actually, I'm going to, I'm going to back up to the first half of your teaching, uh, where you were just teaching specifically out of Matthew. Mm -hmm. Um, you talked about that journey. It really struck me actually this, it had never occurred to me that, you know, Jesus said, Hey, I'm going to meet you in Galilee. And that was, you said 80 kilometers away, 80 miles, 80 miles away. Well, they, they didn't use the metric system. Well, there. it was, it was uh, four full days of walking. Man. Uh, you talked very briefly about, uh, 
you've encountered people who are unwilling to go on the journey, unwilling to journey to find Christ. And I think you're probably speaking metaphorically at this point, um, but what does that look like? What, what does it look like to be willing to journey to find Christ? What is that journey? It's going to look different for different people, but when you, it, you must've had some specific cases in mind when you said I've encountered people yeah, who won't journey. I did because we tend to think of that as, well, I, they're, they won't become a Christian or they and I wasn't thinking of it that way. Yeah. I was saying that uh, whether you have uh, professed faith in Christ or not, it's still a journey. Yeah. And that uh, if somebody sent me a song Sunday morning that they heard in Tennessee, your brother sent it mm. to me, about this, this wonderful bridge about being willing to let go of all the ways I've done things. Mm. And I think that that really – that marks some of the conflict throughout Matthew, doesn't it? People who, whether it's the religious folks, whether it's the rich young ruler, whatever, it's saying, no, I'm, I'm comfortable with what I've got. Yeah. And I think I've been confronted quite a bit with that lately. Comfortable with what I've got. If we're going to follow him, you know, I've said before to you that, that – uh, this is advanced logic. You can't go somewhere till you leave somewhere. <laughs> and it's a logic that we overlook. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have to leave behind. Jesus said that so clearly in yeah. the Synoptic Gospels, mm-hmm. all of them. Yeah. He said, you can't, you can't put your hand to the plow and look back. You, everyone who comes has got to give up his comfort zone. He, he talks about you know, mother and father and yeah. house and so forth. So that's what I was saying. Okay. And it doesn't... We can look at it dualistically and think, oh, that's for the non-Christians, but I'm a believer. Mm-hmm. No, it's the nature of being a disciple. And isn't that what Matthew has laid out for us most, more strongly than any of the four Gospels? This process of becoming a disciple is an ongoing process. Yeah. All right. Staying in the practical, uh, you, today the second half of your teaching really focused on uh, helping us to understand a much uh, you've talked about a bigger gospel. This was almost a bigger resurrection, a bigger understanding, uh, a cosmic understanding of the resurrection. Yep. Uh, how will that bear fruit in our lives? If if we begin to understand not just an individual, Jesus rose from in the same way Jesus died for me, an individual. Yep. He rose from the grave for me, an individual. If we move from an individual understanding of the resurrection to a more cosmic, grander understanding of what was happening in the resurrection, what what will that look like in our daily lives? We, How does that change things? We become participants to a growing degree. Mm-hmm. That's why Paul said that we're co-heirs, we're co-laborers. And we start to look at creation. We start to look at what is happening in our immediate world and the larger world and look for Christ in it. Mm-hmm. This is really a huge shift for us, finding Christ in these things and then again moving in his rhythm, right? Yeah. So it changes it because otherwise salvation, our message has been so small. Um, it, it, my own message was so small 30 years ago. You know, pray a prayer, come to Jesus, yeah. you'll be with him forever. Well, yes, but that's that's just this tiny little bit. When we begin to get this biblical view, which, by the way, was universally held for, for uh, a thousand years, mm-hmm. then we recognize 
wait a minute, I'm a participant in the restoration of all things. And that has to affect the way I interact with people, situations, my understanding of even what's going on in the news. Yeah. Uh, I've asked this question more times than I can count on this podcast, but I'm going to keep asking it because I think it's actually really, really, really important. And I think it's one of the reasons we do this. Uh, The... How does this change our, what I sometimes call our gospel pitch? Uh, Sometimes you'll hear the opening salvo in a gospel conversation is, do you know where you're going to go when you die, right? Uh, And, I mean, in fairness, you talked a little bit about that today. I think it was really helpful to talk about paradise and things like that. But but it sounds to me like you're saying, hey, if if we start our gospel pitch with that small of of an understanding, that narrow of an understanding of the meaning of resurrection, then... uh, we're in a sense setting somebody up to live a small gospel rather than to participate in this new creation. And so if the question isn't, uh, do you know where you're going when you die? What's, what's a great way to get a conversation started Mm, about the gospel? Very good. I think I may have told this story before when we looked at chapter four, but, um, I was in Burundi uh, I think maybe, I don't know for sure, 10, 12 years ago. And in essence, as I get to preach outside and, you know, crowds of people, um, I was called up to the platform, which I knew I would be, and I had to walk about 40 yards because it was raining and I was under a tarp and the platform was under a tarp. In that 40 yards, completely unaware I got a download that changed my gospel. Hmm. Want to hear it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I re- referred to this when we when we looked at the calling of the disciples. Mm-hmm. He didn't say, come follow me and you'll go to heaven. He said, come follow me. There's a job to do. Yeah. I'm going to teach you how to fish for men. And prior to that, as people would come forward to receive Christ, and you know, I've been preaching outdoors for who knows more than 30 years um you know it would it would be women it would be women pulling their reluctant husbands um when when the gospel was you know come to jesus and you you know he'll forgive you and you'll be with him forever which is true yeah (laughs) but when the gospel turned to he has a great cosmic plan, and he's inviting you into that plan. Not only did the number of people responding go way up, they responded way quicker. And what happened, uh, and this is absolutely truthful, at the front of the parade from then till now were young men and mm. young women. Yeah, There's purpose. purpose. There's eternal yeah. purpose. Mm-hmm. So that's my answer. Yeah. Good. Uh, I think we have to leave it there. Uh, I've got more questions. They're written down here, but I'm not going to ask them. I'm trusting that you have some of the same questions or maybe others. So feel free to write us. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Podcast at impactnations.com is the email address, and we will discuss them right here in this space. Uh, hey, this week we are actually in the middle of uh, the event we've been talking about for so long. Uh, and if you're not here, 
well, that's silly. You should have come. But uh, I wanted to let you know that uh, if you're seeing this before Friday night, you can catch it live on YouTube. Uh, Our Friday night event with Brian Zond is going to be broadcast live on YouTube. Uh, But then if you're hearing this afterwards, don't worry. uh, It is available on our YouTube channel. Uh, So be sure to check that out because it's going to be fantastic. yeah, there's, <laughs> this is quite the event. I'm so excited. Um, hey, just a reminder, impactnations.com slash thrive. Please come uh, give. Also tell your friends uh, we're going to – we need to recruit an army to, uh, to rescue all these young women. And uh, so we need your help with that. Uh, thanks so much for being with us. We do have one more week left on the resurrection. No. Uh, on Matthew, sorry. Matthew 28, on Matthew, we're going to yeah, talk about the Great the Commission. The Great Commission. Uh, and then I guess – <laughs> I think we'll take a little break after that so you can catch your breath. Um, but there are coming attractions. Where there are coming attractions indeed. And we're going to tell you a little bit more about that next week too. Uh, thanks so much for being with us. Actually, maybe not next week. I think we're taking a week off because we need to catch our breath after uh, after the conference. So um, if you don't see us next week, tune in two weeks from now. Uh, either way, we've got one more little bit of Matthew 28 for you. Uh, so we look forward to seeing you then. Thanks so much. Have a great week. Bye-bye.